Welcome to episode 22 of Around the Jewish World with Tom Price. Our focus this time is going to be the city of Marrakesh in southern Morocco, erstwhile capital of Morocco, and still one of the four imperial cities where the king of Morocco spends at least part of every year in the royal palace there. So if you are new to this series around the Jewish world with Tom Price, uh, you won't necessarily realize that I'm going to do this episode in a very different way from previous episodes, in part because I've been to Marrakesh many times and it's one of my favorite cities in the world. And I want to share with you why before I go into the history of the city itself or of its Jewish community. Uh, Both are very ancient, and Morocco, like many of the other countries we've been discussing in this series, has shifted boundaries over the years. It didn't always look like what it is today. It was sometimes smaller, sometimes bigger, sometimes further north, further east, further south. And its capital has also changed. There were a few centuries in which Marrakesh was the capital of a southern kingdom, but not of all of Morocco. And then there were a few centuries in which Marrakesh was the capital of all of Morocco. And in fact, Marrakesh is the place that gave Morocco its modern name, Maroc in French, uh, which sounds very much like the Arabic pronunciation of Marrakesh. Why is it such a special city? My first visit there took place in the 1970s when I was working for the World Union of Jewish Students. And I only went to two cities, Casablanca, which is a big commercial center and certainly the largest Jewish community that Morocco ever had, and Marrakesh, which also had an important Jewish community, but a very different feel. And in particular, what comes to mind when I think about that first visit is that there are about two months of the year from I'd say early March to early May, when orange trees are in bloom everywhere in Marrakesh, all the sidewalks, all the dividers in the middle of streets, and the rich, luxuriant perfume of these orange blossoms completely fills the air of the city. So that if you're used to Marrakesh during orange blossom season and you visit at any other time of the year, you feel that there's some intangible thing missing, that you're not really in Marrakesh if you're not smelling those orange blossoms everywhere. It's also a stunningly beautiful city. It's sort of rose red. The Atlas Mountains are in the distance and on clear days, which is almost every day because it's desert, you can see the snow-capped peaks of the Atlas Mountains year-round. I don't know, it gives you a sense of relief when you're in the baking sun, if you're there in the hot months like May, June, July, August, you look up and you see these snow-capped peaks and you feel instantly cooler. It's also a beautifully set-up city. One of its features is a very luxurious hotel called the Mamunia, which was built in the early 20th century and is currently owned by the king of Morocco and a wealthy Jewish family. They're sort of co-owners. And it's very centrally located, has extensive, absolutely gorgeous gardens right behind it that have several restaurants and bars inside the gardens. And it had always very famous visitors like Winston Churchill, Josephine Baker, Edith Piaf, 
sort of royalty from both Europe and later from the Americas. In the 60s and 70s, people like Yves Saint Laurent, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, John Paul Getty, all spent significant amounts of time in Marrakesh. Yves Saint Laurent bought a major property and created these beautiful gardens, which can still be visited today, in the very center called the Majorelle Gardens. It was quite an exception to most cities in Morocco, and it always attracted huge numbers of foreigners. At first, only those who were in the know and wealthy, and then by the late 60s and early 70s, also hippies and backpackers, which eventually became a problem for the Moroccan government. By the end of the 70s, the government had cleared out most of these backpackers and hippies and drug users and cleaned up the city to the point that it became a very popular place for international meetings and conferences, some of which were quite important. Let me just give you one or two examples of that. UN agencies became very active in Marrakesh from the 70s onward. And in 1982, UNESCO declared the Old Town area of Marrakesh to be a World Heritage Site. In the 1980s, more and more famous expatriates bought significant estates and renovated old Moroccan homes and turned them either into secondary residences for themselves or very fancy hotels for others. In 1994, the Marrakesh Agreement was signed in Marrakesh, obviously, which established the World Trade Organization, the WTO. And in 1997, the World Water Council organized the first World Water Forum in Marrakesh. And this continued well into the current century. In November of 2016, for example, Marrakesh hosted the 2016 United Nations Climate Change Conference. So why is Marrakesh such an incredibly popular tourist destination? A combination of reasons, some of which will seem odd if you haven't been there. If you have been there, you'll immediately recognize the things I'm talking about. First of all, there's the climate, which is pretty nice all year round. It gets a little bit cold and rainy sometimes in the, in the dead of winter, uh, just like here in Tucson where I am. But most of the year, it's very nice clear, sunny, and not too hot. Also, the low humidity makes the heat bearable when it is hot. There is, in the center of Marrakesh, a giant square, which, while probably not the biggest public square in the world, is certainly the most lively in the sense that you can't drive through it. It's pedestrians only. And throughout this giant square are all kinds of shows, like snake charmers playing flutes and bringing cobras up out of a wicker basket, or trained monkeys who play musical instruments, or magicians, and quite simply hawkers who sell all kinds of real and counterfeit antiques, handicrafts, whatever. So it's a buzz of human activity from really sunrise to sunset at least. It starts quieting down after dark, it's never entirely quiet, it's never entirely abandoned, but it's right in the center of the city and you cross through it frequently if you're a visitor and if you're visiting other sites, which include the old city, the Medina, the Melach, the old Jewish quarter, those incredible gardens behind the Mamunia Hotel, and 
the Saadian tombs. Now, you won't know immediately who the Saadians were until I give you a little bit of history, but I'm coming to that quickly. What I do want to say is once the French took over Morocco, they built a Ville Nouvelle, a new city, which attracted mostly Europeans or wealthy locals. And so today... There are really two functioning synagogues in Marrakesh. One is in the heart of the old Melach, and that's a synagogue that's been active since roughly 1400. And there's a new synagogue uh, in the new city that has been active for almost 100 years. And you have your choice of where to go. I always bring my groups to the historic synagogue in the Melach. It's hard to find You basically need a guide to walk you there because the streets in the old city of Morocco don't make right angles. They're not well labeled. You can easily get lost. Even if you've been there once or twice before, you need a refresher course every time. Uh, What's interesting about this synagogue is that it's built around a large courtyard. And in the courtyard, unlike synagogues in the West, which offer usually some form of food or drink after services are finished. At this one, at least on the Sabbath morning, on Saturday morning, they offer tea, coffee, cakes, etc. before services so that you're sustained for the next two or three hours. The services are delightful. They're open to everyone. There's usually a significant presence of foreigners, either foreigners who live there or foreigners who are visiting. And we'll come back to that in a minute. The Most recent time I brought a group to Marrakesh, there was one fairly young guy working as a college professor who didn't have a whole lot of money. But because maybe, I have no idea really why, he was the youngest person in our group and probably the youngest person there, still in his 30s, the local synagogue bigwigs offered him an aliyah, which is an honor during the course of the Saturday morning service. And he was so touched by this that when he left, he put a $100 bill into the charity box. Now, $100 for some people is just petty cash. For this guy, it was a significant amount of money. And his comment to me when I said, why'd you leave so much? Was, listen, if I had known Orthodox Jews like this growing up, I would be Orthodox. So I found that a very moving commentary on the welcoming nature of this synagogue and its service. There is also in Marrakesh, for those of you for whom such things matter, a kosher restaurant called Dar Ima, the Mama's House, which is fairly small, very modern and very good, but they do a huge carryout business for observant Jews who are staying in hotels. Now, the biggest hotels have kosher kitchens because one of the largest groups of tourists to come to Morocco is Israelis. And people from other places in the world, such as Canada or France, who have Moroccan origins. And the time that all of these people come to Morocco is for Passover, when every five-star hotel throughout the country has a kosher for Passover kitchen. And every guide worth his salt speaks at least a little Hebrew so that he or she can give their tours in Hebrew to Israeli groups. And just a reflection on this, Morocco is such a rich Jewish heritage that Jewish groups come from all over the world, not only from Israel, and they don't rely entirely on 
Jews of Moroccan origin. I don't think there was a single person in my most recent group who had any Moroccan blood at all in them. But this has become such an important source of tourism revenue that the current king has spent millions of dollars renovating sites of Jewish interest, whether synagogues, cemeteries, whatever, so that people can easily access them. And in something that's less publicly known, and they do it very subtly, but when there's a group that's primarily Jewish, they assign a security agent who's on a motorbike and is introduced as the tour guide's assistant. So the excuse is if somebody needs to go to the toilet or whatever, that person can escort them safely to a toilet. But the real reason is they don't want anything bad to happen to anybody who's visiting with a Jewish group or who's on a Jewish heritage tour. And so far, their record in this area is extremely good. Now, I wouldn't be true to myself if I didn't give you at least a little bit of history of Marrakesh. So here goes, very condensed. There's some dispute about exactly when Marrakesh was founded. Most people agree that it was sometime between 1060 and 1070 of the Common Era. It was founded by the Almoravids, one of the two groups of Moroccan fundamentalists who invaded Spain at various points. And then it was conquered by the Almohads, the, the next group. When it was an Almoravid city, it served as the capital of a huge empire, which covered all of Morocco, western Algeria, and southern Spain, the area we've talked about in great detail in this series, called Andalusia. Eventually, the Almohads took over, and made Marrakesh into more of a regional capital. It was during these early periods, the Almoravids and the Almohads, that Morocco received its name in foreign sources from the city of Marrakesh. The internal struggle within the Almohad ranks led to the loss of Andalusia and the rise of a new dynasty in Morocco called the Marinids, whom we talked about when we talked about Fez. This set up an ongoing rivalry between Marrakesh and Fez that to some extent exists to this day. But it was resolved in a sense when the Saadians took over Morocco, defeated Fez, and made Marrakesh the undisputed capital of the whole country. This was early in the 16th century, and a lot of the most beautiful buildings in Marrakesh today were built by the Saadians. There are tombs, there are religious schools, there are mosques, and they have a certain style which is very graceful and, and light somehow. And unlike the rest of the city, which is rosy, red, orange, whatever you want to call it, the Saadian buildings are mostly white or ivory in color. They were, of course, eventually replaced by a dynasty called the Alawites, and the Alawites, who took over in the course of the 17th century, are still in power to this day. They decided not to have any one permanent capital, neither Fez nor Marrakesh, but to rotate around several imperial cities. And eventually, the political capital of the country became Rabat. The commercial capital is 
Casablanca, obviously a big port and a very big city. The academic, intellectual, perhaps spiritual capital is Fez, and the touristic capital is unquestionably Marrakesh. Jews have been part of Marrakesh throughout its history, although there was never a huge Jewish community there. At its peak, it was maybe 25,000, and today it's maybe 1,000. And the vast majority of Jews who left, left following the independence of the State of Israel and or the Suez War in 1956. Okay, for those of you who are celebrating the Jewish New Year in the coming week, I wish you a good, sweet year. And we will be back to talk again soon. Please remember, if you haven't already done so, to like or follow or share this page on Facebook, Around the Jewish World with Tom Price. Thank you and have a very good year.